Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists from around the world to join us this summer in New York City or virtually from your home studio in the school's legendary marathons and learn from dedicated artists and to expand as makers. Rigorous and immersive, marathons unfold over 10 days from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time daily and present a wide range of art-making strategies combined with comprehensive critiques and inspirational discussions. Paradigm-shifting discoveries propel artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies in understanding their experience in the world, the profound impact of which continues far beyond each marathon. Generous, partial scholarships are available. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is an employee-owned company that makes the best artist materials for making that you can get. Over the last 25 years or so, I've been using Golden acrylics, mediums, and materials, and I stand by the quality in their products. They make acrylics that stay wet longer, they dry flat, mediums to make you paint super thick and beautifully fluid. They also make Williamsburg oil paints and core watercolors as well. You can find Golden in your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is supported by the fine coffee makers at Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Fulcrum has amazing coffee beans that you can order straight to your door. On their website, you can choose from different roasts from different origins, and you can even get a coffee subscription where you can get different beans delivered to your door each week or month. I'm on this subscription plan and it's amazing. As a coffee fanatic, getting new roasts all the time delivered fresh to the door is amazing. If you get to Seattle, you can even see a 10 foot by 40 foot mural of mine in their 6th and Bell Street shop. Check out Fulcrum Coffee Roasters at fulcrumcoffee.com. Marcus Linnebrink is an artist from Dortmund, Germany, who studied at the Academy of Fine Arts in Berlin, Germany, and the Gesamte der Schule in Kassel, Germany. His recent solo exhibitions include Gallery Max Estrella in Madrid, the Foundation Didac in Spain, the Museum of New Art in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Miles McHenry Gallery in New York, Talbert Contemporary in Berlin, Patricia Suitao Gallery in San Francisco, and Maurizio Caldiorola Gallery in Monza, Italy. Marcus has been included in group exhibitions at numeral international institutions including the Aldrich, the Borisan Contemporary in Istanbul, the Daegu National Museum in South Korea, Kunsthal Nuremberg in Kunstmuseum Bonn, the San Jose Museum of Art, the Tucson Museum of Art, and the Visual Arts Center of Richmond in Virginia. His work can be found in the collections of the Clemens Sells Museum in Germany, El Espacio 23 in Miami, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, the Ministry of Culture at The Hague in the Netherlands, New Gallery in Kassel, Germany, the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts Museum, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and many more. His current show, Everything Between the Sun and the Dirt, is on view at Miles McHenry Gallery 
and it's up through the 22nd of July at 511 West 22nd Street. I spoke with Marx about early days in school in Germany, getting into out music, playing guitar, moving to New York City, family photos, color as a medium, German soccer, and much more. Here's our conversation. days as a, a young boy growing <laughs> up in Germany. <laughs> so I get to yeah, well, I get to figure out the backstory here. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. I'd like I mean it's I always say like you know like I also I had a German life and I have a New York life, you know, because yeah. like I have a kid in, in like I mean who's a grown man now and a really good artist on it on his own and lives in Berlin, you know. So that's cool, you know. But then coming here it's like you start in a way over, but in a yeah. different way, you know. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I never came to New York to be like, oh yeah, I gotta make it in New York because that's what people say. You know, when I, I went to 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 art school like first in Kassel, mm-hmm. and I started when the documenta was over, and that was in nineteen eighty two. So the the wall was still up, and Kassel, like that's why why Bode started documenta. It was like it was such a shitty little town. He's like something. I live here. Something good has to happen you know yeah. and then he like he found a documenta and that became such a big thing yeah. but when i got to to castle to start art school documenta was just over and uh, i was like okay. i was in the in the in the hole between two documentas you know the next one would be like two years later in 87 you know and i went to see the first one in 82 like like i saw the one before i started studying in that town i went with a friend who dissed everything and i was also like yeah this kind of shiza man this <laughs> fuck this you know you're like like you're like not knowing anything yeah. bullshitting Angsty. you know yeah, and yeah. yeah and absolutely ignorant you know but yeah. there were like so much great stuff and le- stuff and later i start to remember yeah that's where was the documenta that put tony crack in place you know he had this assemblages wow. of his found plastic things and there were some other things you know where like and Caramelle and whatever, you know. So there were so many good things that I was basically blind for at that moment. But right. then... It's almost like those curators had... knew something. <laughs> <laughs> yep. A little, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, so then, then I studied there for three years and I was like, I can't be in this town anymore. And then I changed art school and kept... Um, I finished my art school education in Berlin. So... But how, like, where did you grow up? Was it near Kassel or was it far away? Not, yeah, it was like, in Germany, everything is near, but it was like That's a, a two, two and a half, yeah, two and a half hour drive. But it was like, Kassel was out of, like, I've never really been there, you know, and I wanted to go to Hamburg to, to study at the academy in Hamburg. But then I went for like a pre kind of, um, if somebody gives you advice, you know, so you like, before you really, advi- like, um, one of the professors, they had an open... Uh, hour for 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 students before they even applied, you know. So you could show your portfolio, blah blah blah. Like a guidance and counselor, guy, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So they're like they would give you advice, and that guy was just like, you know what? That's all very cute and stuff, you know. But you should be an illustrator and just whatever. So I didn't get into Hamburg, and then so Kassel was like where I got in, and I was like, okay, I guess I've start my art career here in Kassel. Is ha- is but Hamburg I, like a a, a more Sort of yeah, it's a it's a larger school. Stature. There's also yeah yeah, and there's a whole like the whole like Hamburg school like Butner and whatever you know. So, 
uh, I think Ulm was there that time too. So, they, or that when they became famous in the eighties, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was definitely uh, a much kind of hipper place to be as an art student than Kassel, you know. And the, there were some good people in Kassel. So I mean, in the end, it also it, it's what you make out of the opportunities you have in any given art school. You know? Yeah, I've never been uh, to Hamburg, but. Um, wasn't it? Isn't there like a red light? Wasn't that where the Beatles got their start? Yeah, yeah, they had like the yeah, yeah, the the red light district, and yeah, they, they played they had the strip this, club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they had that whole stretch of gigs there, and it, it's kind of like where they started to explode. Yeah, yeah, the ten thousand hours were were chipped away yeah. at in Hamburg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like my the extent of my Hamburg. Yeah, <laughs> but then Hamburg also has a really good, and I was talking to somebody else there the other day about it Hamburg has a really good music scene you know yeah. so there's like German bands that people don't know here but like Tokotronic and Blumfeld that was like kind of really uh, cool music in Germany in the in the 90s you know yeah that so it was it was kind of a center you know um, whereas Kassel didn't have too much of that yeah just well, a documenter growing up I mean were your parents parents creative in what they did or how did you sort of find uh, creativity? I don't know. I don't know. Like I've, the, you know, it's like this this kind of time when you're like fourteen, fifteen or so, and you think you're like, oh, creative. You scribble in class instead of listening to the teachers, you know. And then I, I just like had this very romantic idea of like I want to be an artist, you know. And my mom said like, oh, she was always good at drawing, whatever. But she worked at the dentist's office, and then my dad is a, was an electric engineer. Um, so there was not really a lot of contemporary art around us. You know, we, I remember traveling to Rome as a kid, as a really little kid in the 60s, and we went to see everything from like the Sixteen Chapel to like Pompeii and all of that. Well, you that'll know? do it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so mean, my, that's like my starting at the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my parents insisted on like adding cultural stuff when we traveled and things like that, you know. Yeah. But then um, the other thing that kind of had an impact that I still uh, uh, um, rely on is like we moved to Romania for two years mm-hmm. in 1970, and that was way behind the Iron Curtain. There was like everybody of my family was like, "You guys are crazy! You take your kids to the to the Eastern Bloc and like whatever," but. My dad was like, I can make twice the money in two years and then we can buy a house, you know, and so that was his plan. Yeah, and that's what we did. And then we made friends there and it was kind of so different um, that it it made a a real, like, impression or impact on, on all of us, both, like, you know, my sister had this street dog that she loved and the dog loved her my little sister and she was like three or four you know and she was running around with that dog on the streets yeah and things like that you know it was really wild so i i imagine when you got back did it feel i mean two years is long enough to feel a little disassociated but not oh yeah no you no not completely you know we were going home in our mind you know but there's this photo my family um like my my dad's uh, sister and brother they had a lot of kids so we were 11 12 uh cousins and they would do this thing where they like whenever there was a family meeting they put it in a line like ducks in a row like from the oldest or tallest to the 
to the youngest and took photos and did that like kind of whenever they had a chance and that one that photo i still remember we came back from romania and my parents were like my mom was like oh my god these look we got these really nice leather it was winter time we had these leather jackets mm -hmm. they were kind of a traditional uh art artisanal kind of stitching on it and whatever and we had like I remember I had a little hat on, and in that row of 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 nieces and nephews in the seventies, we looked like the weird immigrants from <laughs> the east because everybody was wearing like the pants were gotten wide, you know, and the right. hair got weird or whatever. And some of our cousins were like almost teenagers, you know, and we were like there, like well, okay, <laughs> the Romanian street <laughs> just, style. Yeah, yeah, we the Romanians just got back, so that was very funny. <laughs> so, uh, and in, yeah, I. Of course, I know that you're an avid music fan. Did yeah. that come from like growing up? Was there music in the house, or was it more of like as you got into this sort of like love of art or thinking about art as something that's fun to do? Was music like a parallel to that? Well, music was always kind of in the house. My dad, like he, like after his Romania gig, he had this months long gig. Uh, in the U.S. in several places, so he brought back like all kinds of stuff. But he also brought back music in in forms of uh, this whole stack of of singles. Yeah, you know, we listened up and down through that stuff, and everything of that was like brand new to us. You know, and, and that that was pretty cool. And those then we were, always those had were a seven inches, like little records. yeah, yeah, the, the the small ones, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with like single songs on them. So those were like we got introduced to that, you know, that kind of was pretty cool. My sisters and me, we just we loved listening to them. And it's like, you know, back then you had like, even if it's 50 or 60 or whatever, it's a limited amount of music you can listen to. Oh, yeah, you know, definitely. Not, not like today. Yeah. <laughs> so we knew them all by heart, all the songs and whatever. And then it's like, I don't know, like I got like in, in, in high school, I had this like group of friends that were like uh, into music too and we started smoking weed and all of that and then we listened to like Ma Vishnu Orchestra and shit like that oh, yeah. so, like, so we were like super cool listening to this kind of jazz rock stuff and yeah. uh, which was pretty far out there looking back you know because the girls back then in Germany like at that time the classmates or whatever they listened to Queen and uh, Bay City Rollers and so The Sweet and stuff like that. And yeah. It was like, and we, but we were so obnoxious. We're like, yeah, we're the cool kids. We're listening to the wild sayings, you know. <laughs> yeah, but, but Vishu, that's like a deep cut, you know. It's not like yeah. hyper accessible unless you're a jazz fan or you're into music, yeah. you know. No, but we also, we listen to that stuff so much, you know. But then we also listen to like the early Genesis and early Pink Floyd and whatever came around during that time. Um but I can still like remember that opening guitar riff from from the Mahavishnu Orchestra. It's yeah. like dee 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 dee. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's etched <laughs> it's in the mind, right? Yeah. Same it's, thing it's with there. like "Breathe" from Dark Side of the Moon. Like when that yeah. comes in, you know, that is such a yeah. specific memory of like, you know, that the feel of that. Yeah. No, and it's like I mean, it's like that that time traveling that music can create, you yeah. know, that I really love, and it's like I feel like like art can do the same thing in a way or colors can do that too that's like where my work sits you know you can also like enter a space and then time travel and that's something that i find really fascinating yeah so um and when did when did you start playing instruments well i like i had this friend who was like we should play guitar and so i started to learn classical guitar when i was 13 and then we we had like um 
this guitar teacher who was pretty good. And then when I was 15 or so, I was like, I, I can't do this classical guitar thing anymore. And I went with him and bought a 12-string Fender, and I wanted to play like Leo Kotke, you know, <laughs> that kind of picking and whatever. And then kind of guitar, I always had a guitar, but it kind of zoned out till my son was six years old. And he's like, I want to play the drums. And I was like, okay. Like living in an apartment with people That's above always, and below. It's like, you're like, really that instrument? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, here's the deal. You're like, you know, he was in the, in the, in the city music school and they introduced him to all the different instruments. Here's a trumpet, violin, guitar, blah, blah, blah. But he's like drums. Like, okay, here's our deal. If you go to, to music school and take your drum lessons and you still want to play the drums as much as you want it now, a year later, I'm going to get you a drum set. We're going to make it happen. Though he was like, that, yes. So in our house, there was like this, on, in, in, on the top floor, there was this one room that the landlord didn't really rent out. So he's like, okay, you can have the room. So that's where we set up the drum kit. And you could still hear it through the hallway. <laughs> so we had to make sure that we found the times with our neighbors where he was able to play. But then he was like, come on, Dad, you need a guitar. You need an electric guitar. We need to be a band now. And I was like, uh, okay. And then I, I uh, borrowed an electric guitar from my friend, and it was like a 78 um, um, Fender um, Strat. Yeah. And it's like, it was a beautiful instrument. It was like, it had a weird faded red, and it was like uh, from... Um, I think my, my dad was still alive then, so he had to solder it back together because like, I never played it. And at a certain point, I was like, hey, let me get this guitar from you. I buy it from you. And he's like, no, no, you can't. This guitar comes with a memory. A friend of mine went into the guitar shop with a huge coat on, stuck the guitar underneath oh and walked out. <laughs> so he basically <laughs> stole that guitar. So I was like, I can't give it away. And I'm like, okay. So then I found this vintage guitar store in our neighborhood and I bought the same year, same guitar, different color. Yeah. And that's when I started playing with my son and he was always a better musician, but I, like, I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, you were just giving him <laughs> some ambiance to play against, right? Yeah, yeah, and then there was a friend of mine who's also into guitar playing and he's like, I have this I have this uh, space in uh, in this old bunker and we can go and play like as loud and as long as we want and whatever. So then all of a sudden it was the three of us and then we started like doing kind of things together. Nice. And then that yeah. I was just going to say it's pretty cool that, you know, I feel like usually it's the parents who are like, you know, instigating the kids, and it sounds like he kind of recruited you, which is pretty cool. No, no, it was it was definitely the other way around. Yeah, without him, I would have probably not gotten into the electric guitar thing like the way I did. And it was always like that was always like uh, like this communication you can have through music. Like you share something with other people, and that's what I really like about it. You know, it's like not just doing something for yourself, but but right. you enter this kind of dialogue and language and whatever and it's not about like to me it was never about like how good I can be or like there's not like it was more like what can we do on a level where everybody's comfortable and we really kind of communicate to each other you know and back then I think Julius was 13 years old and I had this friend who made these records uh, and off it was like a record uh, art edition, mm -hmm. and he would always invite artists to make um, a, a piece of 
art that fits into the double record um, carton yeah. and then uh, a collaborative artist who would make the music on, on a vinyl to it. And so then he invited us to do something like, and he's like, you do one side of the record, the other one side of the record is was done by this group in Tiny Hairs in 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 Chicago. So it was also artist experimental kind of music stuff. Yeah. And then we all made a um, um, like a piece of art for it. It was kind of cool. And so we recorded uh, enough stuff to cut it together for a side of a record. That's cool. So Julius, thirteen-year-old Julius, and me and my friend exist on a vinyl on a recording. It was nice. really fun. Yeah, yeah. We went to the recording studio, and my son is like, "Are we done yet? Are we done yet? I need to get uh, to my friend's house. I feel like we have our our play date. We we need to build our Playmobil city. Come on." That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it was really funny. So with but your nice. with your drawing and stuff, I mean, was that you know like the music? I guess playing it was later but you were always into it what about sort of like taking the artwork from something that you just like doing like you know you like drawing or sketching or whatever to when it gets a little more serious like in which way like when did it like when did it change in when you were really young from you know something you're just kind of interested in fooling oh. around with to something that like okay I want to dedicate some serious time and and work into this. As I, in, 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 it was basically pretty much then when like I started to to really draw by colors, like even oil paints and whatever. And I had like a, a, a studio set up in in my room, a little bit, you know, where I could just like do these things. And and I had a really good art teacher then, and she was uh, an artist herself, and she she went to the academy in Munich. And she ended up being like our teacher in this weird school that I went to, but she kind of like um, she helped me, especially when I was like with my parents. I was like, I'm gonna go and study the arts, and they're like, Yeah, but wouldn't you want to be an art teacher? So at least know you can make some money if you have to. And then right. she was like, Oh, you know, we I think Marcus has some talent, so just let him do. And that that was a big help because then my parents were like, Okay, we'll see. You know. Yeah, it took them and to so, seeing hearing her feeling that you had some promise there well you know the thing is like i don't know how it was with you and your parents but if you like if you walk out into an area where your parents have no clue about you know my my other sister my older sister is a fashion designer and my younger sister is a doctor so both those things meant something for my parents you know but what do you do as an artist and how does this whole system work you know and i had no idea i was totally naive and blue-eyed walking into all of that you know like like most people, you know. Yeah, you just kind of right. well, this pre-internet too, so you're just blindly yeah. listening to other right. people say like, "Oh, you should go there. You should do that." Yeah. Or this is where you learn that. And you just follow yeah. it. You know, there wasn't yeah. really a choice. But my parents, my yeah. dad drove a truck, so I mean, when I and I switched from pre-medicine to art, and they were like, "Hey, well, just do what you want to do." You know, it was All kind right. of a gift. You know, they were kind of like, just work hard at it. You know. Yeah. No, that's 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 a good thing, you know. If you have that that kind of support, you know, that that's good. You know, when my my son was like, "I'm gonna go and study art," I'm like, "Are you fucking crazy?" <laughs> I thought you were and gonna say, that, like, I mean, "Go get him." <laughs> 
he was like, I mean, he basically halfway grew up in my studio, you know, so he knew all about it and he knew what happened and he went to openings and museums and all of that. So he was immersed in it, you know, but it's like, yeah, you see that I live from what I do, luckily, but that is not the given, you know, it's not going to be easy for you to, to just like roll out there and do the same. But then you're like, so I really want you to consider it hard. You have to be in it wholeheartedly otherwise don't start it because then at a certain point you just figure out that you um wasted some time or maybe not wasted time but it's like you know it can be painful to to just realize that you have to walk away right well here's my, my theory on that is no matter what someone wants to do when they're younger like it's going to be hard it's either going to be hard like yeah. the amount of hours or whatever like if you're going to do it well or really yeah. try to achieve in it it's going to be hard so yeah. a lot of times people say well art's really hard because you're not guaranteed uh, a paycheck but you are guaranteed to be doing something creative that fulfills you yeah. you know in a, in a way even though it may be harder to pay bills but then you yeah. may go be a lawyer and that's yeah. hard in a different way because maybe it's hard on you mentally and it's hard on yeah. you you know like all those hours and stuff and you become miserable in that sense you know so it's really my theory is you let them do what they want to do and just tell them to work really hard no definitely definitely i just wanted to be like listen you have to be really so like you have to be really convinced that that's it you know yeah. it's like, and it's like you know and in, in germany it's like it wasn't that a problem that much of a problem he went to the academy in dusseldorf and studied with katarina grossa and it's like dusseldorf is one of the really good art schools in in germany and he, he got a lot out of it and it cost like 500 euros a year oh you know so he yeah you you, you go to one that's of the amazing. best art schools in the country and you have no death coming out you know that's and that's that's crazy. a huge difference yeah no it is crazy and that's a the, that's a little bit my problem here with with art education in the u.s it's like a lot of these schools that cost so much money yeah. and that's versus that it's not it's not what you really want to do or where you want to go or where you fulfill like your dreams and all of that it's just like the hard reality of coming out and being like okay I did all of this and now I'm an art handler. You know, I'm really overqualified, but what I'm doing is like I'm working in a gallery or on a truck and move art around, you know. So like if 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 that system could be different, you know, and it wouldn't be Yeah, what do you do with all that death when you come out of art school, you know? Yeah, that's a problem for a lot of people. I mean, I said that you're that's crazy in relation to your son's tuition or whatever, but that's not crazy. That's like what it should be it's crazy here no exactly yeah yeah that's that you what can I mean. come out with like yeah. two hundred fifty thousand dollars of debt yeah i mean it's like a quarter of a million dollars in the hole from the jump and then you're gonna yeah. try to sell art <laughs> you know <laughs> i mean i guess at least if you're a doctor yeah you know you might be able to get a yeah no that's a, yeah or like you, you become an architect at least there's a real demand for that you know the arts you have to find your place and you have to create basically the desire for your work by putting out the work but then where where do you put out the work it's like all these steps that we all went through you know that are like a hundred times frustrating and then glorious you know yeah but you said yeah. the hell with it i'm doing this art thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just like i was like i will do it i'm gonna do it <laughs> well we didn't the de- i'm sure your education wasn't the expense that it is today 
No, no, it was also like uh, arts, the art schools that I went to were free, you know, and it's also, it's like the, the German system was like, when I was there, it was like totally open, you know, I didn't have to do shit. Yeah. So like everything that I did was from my own um, um, kind of incentive, you know, I was like, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm, I want to learn this, I want to go there, or like, like I, I want to do this essay about my Francis Bacon or whatever, you know, but these things you didn't have to because they were like, when I went through the art schools in, in the early 80s, they weren't even like uh, uh, mandatory tests or whatever you know the only thing that i did was in the end in berlin we had like our thesis show you know so yeah. you showed what you've been working on the last one or two years do you think all the this is a side note do you think all that structures yeah. put into it these days because there's so many distractions that it tries yeah. to keep you in line and on check you know what i mean because yeah. back in the day like when i was in art school there was uh there was no you know there's nothing else to do really yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not. You know what I mean? Like nowadays, there's yeah. a lot of really cool stuff that you can tinker with. To spend like, you know, you put your phone down and you're like, oh my god, two hours just went by. <laughs> like that doesn't happen know, yeah. before technology. <laughs> like you know, you're just sitting in your apartment. You're like, well, I'm gonna go to the studio. You know? Yeah, I'm gonna draw. I'm gonna like put a lot of time into this little piece of paper. Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, there. Yeah, no, 80s. There was like nothing. I think I remember in the two, when when like the 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 calendar switched from nineteen ninety nine to two thousand, everybody was like afraid that computers would die. Yep. Yeah. Why two K? The the end of the world is coming. <laughs> They're like it can't handle the zero, the zero. <laughs> <laughs> it's all based on ones and zeros. Come on. Yeah. No. But it's it's funny. I feel like, uh, yeah. I wonder if if the real challenge today or like sometimes I think of this when I'm teaching like the student who has the chance of making it as far as you know going on to produce work and getting a studio and showing the work yeah, I don't know yeah. whatever making it is but basically living yeah. off making their work is someone who just has the sheer ability to be disciplined enough to just be in the studio all the time and that's good enough you know what I mean like to have the concentration yeah, no, yeah. and to put the reps in yeah, you definitely have to do that, you know. But there, I don't know if you read that article about there was a show somewhere not in New York, but about like um, work uh, by people that had other jobs, and when they had other jobs to support their art career, and I think all of these people made it big enough in the end. But it was like it it, it opened this door to the dialogue about like what do we think, which art is worthy, you know? It's yeah. Like the same thing with outsider art or all of the art that was overlooked for so long that's now getting into focus finally. Um, so it's also interesting to think about, like, but if I have a happy life and I make art that I think is really cool, it's just not in the market. Is that still good art, right. you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess it sounds like your school situation was kind of, like, very, like, do what you're going to do. I mean, did yeah, you come out of that, that with, like, a... Like a feeling of like, oh, okay, I, you know, because a lot of times, you know, you can make your arguments against grad school uh, or whatever, for or against uh, it or whatever. But uh, one thing, having two years of just focusing on your work with a lot of people around giving uh, you some input is, yeah. you know, you come out of that with usually a little more rigor and kind of like, yeah. a, maybe not a body of work, but a body of an experience that really informs the way you're making your work and stuff. Yeah. How was your education? Like, how did you come out of that? Like what happened? Well, it's it's like when 
Um, well, I was living in Berlin then, and I tried to, like, when I knew that my art school, day, school days were kind of over, I was like, got to find a studio, got to find a place where I can work. So I, I found this, um, it was like a, um, like a ground floor space that wasn't inhabited since the war. It was like, had a door to the streets. So it was more like a shop kind of scenario, yeah. like a store. Uh, but there was nothing inside. I had to install a toilet and floors and everything. And like my dad came visiting and he was like, why do you do this? What did you do? Why? <laughs> squalor. <laughs> yeah. Living in squalor. But, it, yeah, but it, it became a really, really cool studio in the end. And I could walk there. And um, so that was the main incentive, like have, find a studio space and be able to work. You yeah. know? And then you finally leave the this kind of agreement behind where like in art school everybody's there we're making art we're going to be the next generation da, 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 all this kind of pumped up energy and then you're sitting there by yourself and all of a sudden you have to figure out what did I do why do I do it how is it connected to my life and how does all of that make any sense you know and then that for me was when I kind of had to break off like whatever it was that I thought I learned in art school yeah. be like redefine yourself as that would might take you somewhere eventually right it's and that that is a very crucial point i think and also it can be a very lonely and and frustrating point i totally agree yeah. i mentioned that a yeah. lot that the one of the biggest challenges of an artist is when you get out of school or a supportive environment you're out on your own and it yeah. gets really quiet and there's not yeah. like you know, because people come out of school and they're like, I'm sick of school, man. I'm tired of this. I've been in school for seven years now. And, yeah. you know, you get out and it gets real quiet real quick. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and when yeah. you invite friends over once in a while, it's not the same. It's not the same rigor. People come hang out. No, but no. It's, yeah. You're not like sitting there for like an hour doing critiques and stuff. So it just, you know, you have to find the impetus on your own and really challenge yourself. Right. It's like, it's all up to you now, you know. And that's, that. I think that's where a lot of people bail on it or they feel like, Without that constant, you know, someone telling them to keep making it or critiquing it or whatever, no. they just, the motivation slides, I think. Yeah, no, and that's where it's really like, then it's like, now it kind of counts, you know. It's easy you have something to say or you find something or not, you know. Yeah, it's like the belief in, uh, there's something monastic about it. It's like, can you do it yeah. on your own? Like, if you, someone goes to church every weekend, what happens when the church goes away and no one else is <laughs> praying? You know, are you still doing it on Sunday? You know what I mean? Do you have it within you, or is it something you have to... Yeah. Yeah. We all... We yeah. had that test during COVID, too, of like, you know, there's no gym. Like, are you going to still try to take care of yourself while you're locked in for two years? Or are you just going to bake bread and yeah. eat and watch Netflix? <laughs> <laughs> it was another kind and I'll of get rounder <laughs> happened to know, us. there was definitely there there yeah. was a lot of uh, yeah a lot of cooking so uh, when yeah. you had this I mean it sounds kind of nice this storefront studio in Berlin I mean that sounds pretty great I mean what kind of work were you making it was it, it was kind of in a pretty shitty neighborhood but I kind of liked it anyway there was like one night I remember that I came out and there was like blood on one of the cars and somebody had tried to kill somebody else with an axe and I was like, Jesus. what the fuck? Where do I live? <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> I didn't know the, well, the streets of Berlin were so rough and tumble. 
they were rough and tumble back then. Like, but everybody was like in the eighties. You know, I had friends. I a really good friend of mine. He went to PS One. He had the 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 grant there. Yeah, the he, like he made his yeah the residency exactly. But that was like the goal for everybody. You know, it's like oh, and then you can make it in New York. And if you make it in New York, then that's amazing. Blah blah blah. I don't know a lot of people that made it in New York in the way that we thought about it or talked about it. He got his bike stolen right away trying to get over the bridge. <laughs> right of <a> passage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to New York. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Welcome to New York. But, I mean, Berlin was, was kind of weird and fun then because it was like still like a half city. Yeah. So the east was there, you know, and it smelled really bad in the wintertime because they were like burning all that brown coal. And the the cars, the trabi, the trabant as they were called, they mm -hmm. they burnt like this kind of mix of of oil and, and gas. So the mm -hmm. smell was really really bad, you know. And there was this there was this uh, passage you had to do. Like if you if you had a car and you would go to the west, you would drive like two hours through East Germany, and then you would enter West Germany somewhere near Braunschweig, you know. And in the middle, in dispersed were like the so called um, of these shops, intershops, they were called intershops. And that's where like the, the East Germans would make hard um, German money by uh, selling alcohol and cigarettes really cheap and without taxes and whatever. Yeah. So you would go like drive from, from West Germany into the dark because there were no street lights. And then when you come closer to Berlin in the night, it was like you saw the dome over Berlin, like yeah. because there was so much electricity and light. And then you had to wait for two hours at the border because they were checking every car like thoroughly to to get in and get your stamp in your passport. So that's that was it's crazy, right? It's not that long yeah. ago, but to no, think it's of not it being that split. Long I mean, yeah. I didn't get to the Berlin until mid two thousands and. Yeah, um, it was you know the remnants of the wall and stuff. It's just it's crazy to yeah. think of what it used to be like, and you're like, how could that have happened? And it feels like that must have been ancient times. And then you realize, well, in Korea, it's like the same thing right now, you know, and it's still, it's still going the same. on. Yeah, it's like crazy. Yeah. yeah, you know, and I'm like, you know, I realize I'm like kind of not that young anymore. I was born in 1961, you know, and I was like, oh, that's really far away after the war and whatever but now like, if I look back from my perspective now it's like 1961 that was like 15 years 16 years after the war ended so like all of Germany was still like fully traumatized you yeah. know and like we grew up with like a generation of traumatized parents you know my mom right. used to live in, in, in the east where they had a big farm you know and my dad was almost eaten by the Hitler youth you know so all of that was kind of like not a topic that much but like at a certain point we found all, all of this out through the family history and stories and my grandma that told us stuff and it's like it seemed as a kid it's like this is long ago no? but when I look at it now it's like oh this like is it happened in such short like kind of uh, amounts of time yeah it's, it's like really crazy and then yeah like when I was born that year they closed the wall in Berlin you know yeah that's crazy uh, yeah and the older you get like the more that time stretch you know happens where it feels like yeah far away but those things aren't that far away you know the things yeah the and you, yeah you get you get like more like a um an idea how like your personal memories and your personal history is embedded in a bigger 
picture yeah you know? and that's why that's one of the reasons why i like to work with my dad's photographs in my in my paintings you know because they're kind of like very relatable because they're a lot of them is like family photos but then it's photos from traveling and him going to weird places yeah. that were not on the on the list like eastern europe was not really on the travel list except for there was some kind of tourism going to the black sea mm -hmm. because it was super cheap so people would go there if they didn't want to spend a lot of money but then other than that you wouldn't really go to to the eastern europe block you know because it was just like not that desirable yeah and then my, my dad also worked in pakistan in the philippines and in korea so you feel like he had like he went around the world back then you know in the 70s and 80s and he brought back so these photos Yeah, and he took. He was a really good photographer. Some of his oh, slides okay. are really amazing. So he took. He had this really nice uh, 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 small scale camera for slides. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so he like I, I have his archive or most of it, ar his archive, and then I go through it and decide which ones I want to turn into into photographs. And some, you know, there's one that I did where he sits at the airport in in Bucharest in Romania, and there's like. Um, He sits on the curb of a street. It looks like a curb of a street. And then there's a like, tiny fence. And then there's a Lufthansa plane with all doors open and like um, the, the, the gates, like the, the, the steps are, you know, it wasn't, we d you didn't have these automatic uh, rail, the, what do they call it? These things that like, like, the get escalate. you into your plane. Oh, right. No, the, yeah, yeah. What's the, the word stair. for that? I'm the, blanking. The escalator up the stairs, you mean? No, no, the things that you get into, like the, the that they mount on the on the plane door. Oh, back yeah. in the days, you would yeah, you would get to your plane and then you could climb the, up the stairs into the, right, the right. this rolling rolling stairs, you know. And so there's like these like these rolling stairs, scaffolds are there. The doors are open. It's like no security at all. Yeah, it's yeah. like crazy, you know. And then when you yeah, when you imagine what flying turned to, especially after 9-11, it was a whole different scenario. You oh, know? yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah that yeah. Re that rearranged things for sure. Yeah. Um, but those photographs, like when did you... Okay, so well, going back to working in Berlin, yeah. what's the... In talking about your work and, you know, its migration from what you were doing then to now, like what was the evolution yeah. of the work itself? Um, I was always kind of interested in, in, in colors and like um, not really as like kind of super bright. I mean, I've worked in kind of a real weird muddy range and like kind of maybe very German. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I started to make my own oil paints out of interest with the pigments. And then I, I took a class about all of that. And uh, um, I thought I get like cheaper better quality paints then so i did that for a long time and then i like started to work with beeswax and i always had an interest of incorporating different uh, materials into what i was doing and um the work kind of became more and more colorful and then somebody hooked me up with resin and i was like oh that's interesting and i like there was this like this lady that had that was after i left berlin it was somewhere like it was in, in West Germany, I moved to Dortmund again, and this lady had a gallery, and I did a show there. And her her husband was like a, a um, contractor, like developer, and he's like, "Look, 
this resin stuff. You can do floors with that, and we could make colorful floors. And we, the, he had like this idea: oh, that's something that might be sellable. And then they hooked yeah. me up with with um, the the company that produced the resin, which was like a forty five minute bike ride away from where I lived. And so I went one summer. I went like twice a week to the laboratories, and they I had like a whole crew of like five people. They were like, "Oh, the artist is coming. Let's work with the artist." And the head of the whole scene he was like, "Oh, this is really interesting." And they all like, "This is such a nice like uh, uh, break from what we do usually." Yeah. So yeah, they definitely. like we so we tried whatever you could do with this resin, you know, make it stiff or put pigments and blow it through like kind of whatever kind of application and all that kind of stuff. And then they invited me to do a, a, a really large floor painting uh, in in their factory. And I was like, where are we going to do them? They're like, yeah, we're going to do it in the basement. He was like, the basement? I'm like, I don't care. It's like for me, it was also a test. Yeah. Uh, but then after we did it in the basement, they were like, huh, we should have placed that somewhere else because it turned out <laughs> really, really nice. How did you do it? Were you just pouring pigments into the resin? Well, I, I, that was when I, could, I was kind of working in an abstract manner with like, with like um, blocks of color, basically. But they were also uh, uh, applying different colors wet on wet in the resin and then see how it dries out so there were like painterly areas and then kind of full color areas and like layered on top of each other it was kind of interesting and it was really cool to walk over it and then you walk from these lighter colors over the dark blue and it like changes your feel of the space changes so dramatically so it was a really cool experience to be able to do that yeah it sounds like when you walk over it you would also feel not out of balance or unease but you know if the floor is shifting if your sense of space and color is moving you're hyper conscious of where your feet are so it it sounds like it'd be an interesting way to you know navigate the space yeah and i did from from that experience on i did several shows where the only like exhibition was basically the painted floors and it was really cool i once had a show in a kutzverein that was like hundreds and hundreds of year old building. It also was like little wonky and like creaky, and it had like at least four different layers. So we put like a a second floor above, a wooden floor above, and then I just painted the whole thing. It was it was really nice because it was such a dramatic change for this old building. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. So you're. I mean, was that the first time like doing the floor of that? that building was uh, that the first that, time you sort of did like an environmental piece like that where you're the, in the, it? no that's that started kind of with walls you know because that was the easier way and i got invited to like a group show in a church and i was like oh let me paint this alcove in the mm-hmm. church and i like i i i got the people agreed what was a good idea so they let me do it and that was the first time i really got big on a wall yeah and from there then when i did that summer with the resin testing and all of that, I was like, okay, let's try to do something like that on the floor and kind of see what how that changes the experience. Yeah, so it kind of opened was, up your sense of making, like where you, how you can encounter the work, you know, and... Yeah, it was it was it was also it's like like maybe early nineties or so. So it's like by now you know you have like stuff that 
occupies whole rooms and everything, that's a given now, you know, right. it's not a big surprise anymore. But back then, painting was like sort of about still a little differently. It wasn't opened up, you know. I mean, I think Katarina Grossa just started her career too, and it mm -hmm. was like that time too when she was like, sprayed a whole room corner, and that was like, oh, look, that's what paint can do, you know. And there were several people, like Anne Caramella did amazing wall paintings, and so some people kind of walked into that pass and, and t like, took paint into the space, and that was something that I always found very interesting for myself too and taking my studio practice into different environments and um, changing spaces is like it's it's still a thing that I enjoy very yeah. much yeah it seems like it seems like um, even the two-dimensional work that's hanging you know what I mean has yeah. this feeling of like an experiential quality to it of like the, the time and the process of, of you know how this thing is made and then when you blow that up into a space it's it's really kind of like envelops the viewer you know i mean the show now yeah. up now with miles is like you know as soon as you walk in before you walk in the front door you feel yeah. like oh this is this is i mean it completely changes the the feeling of that space yeah, yeah i wanted that it's like it's like and um I really wanted to create a show like that you know because it's like you know you you work with the gallery and then it's like show number two show number three and this is show number six with miles yeah. so i'm like we have to do something that really engages people and then the space that i'm working to like the first space has like this little entry room where there's usually just the name of the artist and maybe show title yeah it's like i'm gonna like grab people right there and envelope them in color and then pull the wall painting into the whole exhibition space and with this big gesture over the long wall. Yeah. And so you basically, it's kind of like connecting everything in a conceptual way where you the, the wall painting drives you in and takes you to the sculpture and then to the wall pieces and to the different kind of bodies of work that I do. And it's all like kind of connected in a way that is almost too much, but then also really beautiful. Right. Yeah, that that sphere. I heard that it was a, a very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> that was the the tag on that sculpture was that it was very heavy. Well, it is it is heavy, but I mean, you know, in my studio, I have a cr like a little lift, like an electric lift, mm -hmm. so we can maneuver it. And once it's like, yeah, I built these spheres out of two halves, so and then there's a mounting part where they they become one. And then you can basically roll them. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's the. <laughs> so advantage. if you want to get them from A to B, it's like I like. I mean, I, I like. I had a, a little video on my Instagram account where I was like rolling it around, lifting it up, putting on dolly, and somebody's like, "Yeah, you look like a dung beetle." You know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> pushing around. Your arm. I had like, yeah, like with a. It was a. It was like a, a, a time lapse. So it's like. Time lapse always makes everything kind of comical a little right, bit. Right, yeah. Know? It's like when they yeah, do those ants following the pheromones to the, the, you know, back to the nest or something, and it's just, it looks like yeah. Koyana Scotsy, like, <laughs> yeah. like fast traffic. Exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, people always like, oh, yeah, when you do this, let's do a time lapse of it. And I'm like, yeah, sure, if you want to do it, you can do it. I'm not doing it. I'm not interested in that. It kind of shrinks everything to this comical, oh, there's ours. Right. And then it's all done, and you're like, uh, yeah, that's not how that goes. Right. No, people eat it up, though. <laughs> you see it online yeah. all the time, you know? 
like this, mm-hmm. like how to make up how I made my painting in 30 seconds. It's like it did not yeah. take 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's the bandwidth I mean, for attention these yeah. days. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like I did this, this really large mural at, at the uh, Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in their lobby. And they, I mean, you know, they have these two buildings. They have this old building that is quirky on its own, you know, and it's, I think it's like one of the oldest uh, steel structure building in the US, mm-hmm. you know, but it also, it's decorated like it comes from a very different time zone. And that's where part of the collection is. And then they have the building where also the, the studios are above and there's like uh, exhibition spaces on two floors. And that has a big lobby with like a giant glass wall uh, to the street. And it always looked like a weird bank lobby or something, yeah. you know. So when, when uh, Harry Philbrick was the director and we did something at the Aldrich together, so he was like, uh, Marcus, you want to come and paint those walls? I'm like, sure. I definitely want to do that. And they kind of hired a guy who did a time lapse on it, which is kind of interesting because of the scale of it. Right. And you you see the light change from day to night and whatever. I mean, they're fun yeah. to watch. So, I mean, yeah. that's they're entertaining. I one time that happened where there were these a uh, very small boutique art advisory uh, group wanted to do like these mini documentaries on artists. Yeah. And no dialogue, just filming and they asked if I wanted to do it and I said yeah you could set it up you you could do it you know just thinking this was going to be some like you know whatever and they came and they set up and they time-lapsed the painting but then they had a couple people from DreamWorks worked on it and it was kind of Uh, amazing because it sort of told the story of the process in like three minutes but it was at Sundance and you know like they did it really well so you can you know you can do it in a really interesting way I think yeah no that's true yeah yeah I mean, this guy was also, he was, he was thorough about it, you know, and different, he even followed me on the lift, tried to get up and whatever. So it, it's, it's not a bad thing to, to have people understand the transformation of a space like that. Yeah, I think we just live it, so we're, yeah. we're not that interested. Yeah. You know, we're more interested in the thing we're making, not like yeah, the recording yeah. of what we're making. Yeah. Although now, when I was installing the, the, the piece at, at Mars Gallery, this lady comes in and of course like she's like oh i was like come back to the opening tomorrow and she's like no i'm leaving tomorrow i'm not from so we started chatting and of course she was also an artist and it was really nice and then talking about the performative quality of what i was doing there mm-hmm. you know and it's like in a way it is kind of like but that's what painting runs down to every painting is kind of a performance you know that you can by looking at it reimagine to a certain point you know and that kind of and that point I find really interesting also for my work that it's like you're confronted with a piece that looks so kind of like boom in your face but then once you like start paying attention and think about it you know you can find out how things are made and and like or put your own theory into into action was like how did he do that and what's first and what's like so and that part of like deciphering something is um yeah, very natural and, and good human behavior in a way, you know, and that's, in that way you learn about these things, you know. And that's where basically looking at every painting, you kind of start thinking about what did the artist do and how did he do it and what was the purpose here for this and that, you know. And then, Yeah, for sure. I, it's funny to me too that, you know, I, I went to MoMA recently and it's been, it had been a while, you know. And I, okay. I, 
I don't go all the time. And I took my son, and then, you know, we went into the room with Pollock's, you know, with that huge yeah. Pollock. And I've yeah. always loved Pollock, and I just always love it. And it's yeah. that thing. It's the performative. You're watching the dance. Yeah. Like, that is yeah. a, a recording of a dance around a canvas, basically. And I just think that's so poetic. You know what I mean? But people yeah. love to just hate that thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, there's I mean, a lot of la- layers to that. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, yeah. But there's also the, the the whole story of the tragic, also asshole male artist, like the whole Pollock thing, right. you know, yeah. and how he lived and died, which is like, I read that whole biography a long, long time ago. Yeah. It's, it's kind of fascinating, but I, he was definitely a good painter, you know. And it was kind of funny that he came out of this dripping, and I think his last paintings went towards figuration again right yeah kind of circling yeah. but back. then uh, yeah when you take in in into account of what his wife was doing and how much she basically built his career yeah. in her work it's kind of crazy though yeah. yeah and her work was amazing there was a great it is there's a great casimir up too in Momo. yeah it's yeah no i love her work it's 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 like stunning yeah and a lot of his work would have not been there without hers definitely yeah. yeah. So um we got we I guess we have to talk a little bit about soccer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, always no, a Dortmund no. fan? Always a Dortmund? Well, I you know like I lived I like I the first time I went to the stadium and it's kind of a rite of passage, you know, I was 13. Yeah. You know, and then you go and then you're part of it and then you just go, you know, and then I moved to Kassel and then to Berlin, whatever. When I moved back to Dortmund for a while, my friends gave me a season ticket. Yeah. And then you're an idiot if you don't renew your season ticket. Right. I mean, I mean, so, you weren't uh, yeah. in the wall area though, right? Where it's like completely insane. No, no, that we were there. We were not in the middle of that, but we were like in that area. Yes. It's crazy. Like if you, if you look at that wall, our spot was like lower right. Nice. See, I always yeah. thought that, you know, Premier Premier League fans were the craziest, yeah. you know. But I mean those fences must mean that it's that it's bonkers in Germany. Yeah, there's like certain certain clubs where the fans are really so close with their teams or so like the identification with like what the what the not the team because the team rotates, you know, but what the the club stands right, for yeah. it's just like uh and that's like schalke is like the same kind of yeah. thing where it's like the the people are invested in the same way and they're like schalke and dortmund have that hate love no not there's no love but the the hate rivalry thing yeah. which i always thought it's stupid because we're like you know the area where i was born is like the old industrial heart of germany so it was like have have a, like really hardly like it was almost all destroyed like the inner city of Dortmund was destroyed more than 90% through bombing in the end of the war um, and like a lot of that area suffered like that you know and then it got rebuilt and re-industrialized you know like Ford had a company like like a, a factory there and there was steel manufacturing and there was all that coal mining but then it had like a little bit the uh, same story as Detroit, all that heavy industry got outsourced and yeah. died down. And then there was a huge rate of unemployment in the 70s. It got really bad. And um, so this kind of 
like unification behind a club like that becomes something of an identifier that is way more important to those people in an area like that than to maybe somebody in I don't know Dusseldorf or so you know yeah which was which was a town that always had money but then there's like in Hamburg there's like the second club and those are like the same kind of uh, fans that are so invested in that club like St. Pauli you know which is the St. Pauli is that Keats it's like that uh, red light area yeah. and the stadium is there and so yeah so it's the uh, underdogs you know right and yeah it's um, that rabid fan base is really impressive <laughs> but it is slightly <laughs> it is, scary I say this as a half German to see that many Germans riled up like that in a cage <laughs> <laughs> It's like, come on, yeah. tone it down. Because when you go see, I, I go to Japan every or a lot, and yeah. I go when I go, I yeah. watch games, and they're very yeah. um, animated and into it, but yeah. n- not quite with the cages and with that the the intensity. Of <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 stadium in Dortmund is like one of the most intense stadiums. You know, it's yeah. like eighty six thousand people, and it's like it's pretty tight. So it, it has an amazing atmosphere to if you go there to see something live, you know. And there was like definitely that kind of um time where like right wing groups try to like submerge into the soccer world like and the kind of recruit people. Yeah. yeah, like the really but the really more like political right. uh fringe uh, and they like Dortmund developed really great kind of uh social uh, uh support and groups to kind of tackle that and 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 like uh, pick up people from those fringes and and kind of try to like work against that kind of radicalization. You yeah. know? I mean, you have that. It's I think it's more scary in Italy. Oh yeah. Where yeah. whether whether yeah whether racism is also so blatant sometimes really bad, you yeah. know yeah it's really bad for for black soccer players sometimes in Italy it's just like you're like whoa that's crazy. I mean, yeah. you think like living in America, and it's race is a big issue here, and it's I think yeah. maybe it's just more out in the open or something. But man, there's you know in Europe in some places. Uh-huh. Uh, well, we we were misled. We were like, oh, we have a black president, everything is going to be good, and then right, yeah. Now we we're living since 2016 under this like dark cloud of backlash that is still not over, and that's terrifying. You know, I never saw. You know, I was like, oh yeah the nazis and that german history like we really have to learn our lessons and i was like i like i did not expect to live under some kind of like slightly similar circumstances right. where you really yeah. have to think about about okay what do you do in a certain situation do you what do you stand up for or like what if trump gets reelected what do we do and how do we protect ourselves and our loved ones and like the people uh, that are not like all white and uh, fit into that idea of of stupid American fifties dream that never really was right anything great to begin with. You know, it wasn't there; just an idea of something. Yeah. But that's what these people sell, and that was the same thing that happened under Hitler. It's like they sold an idea of something that was never 
Exactly. And, and, you know, back then it was kind of like you say, oh, well, there was propaganda and you didn't have access to information. They would like drop flyers or like the propaganda machine was so. So that can't happen anymore because now we have the Internet and we have info- yeah, everyone can find information. <laughs> it's just the same shit. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the, 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 the propaganda machine is way more intense, you know, because people also just black out what they don't want to listen to. You exactly. know? It's like, yeah. like the idea that like Trump broke laws it's just like it doesn't mean anything to all these people they're just like yeah what I want to be like him I want to do whatever I want and grab like whoever I want by who whatever body parts I want you know yeah it, at the risk it, of it, sounding it, old I'm like man I just don't get it <laughs> no it's like it, there's something really so despicable in it you know but, but they, they and it I always like try to understand it in a way but it i just don't get it it's like i can't wrap my mind around that kind of behavior yeah. and it's like also it's like you're making yourself so small if we don't learn you know we are like i grew up like privileged my parents weren't rich you know i don't come from money or anything like that but we had a good education yeah and you know we were we we had a house we had a car we had vacations all of that so i consider it as pretty privileged in in a way of a relative safe uh, upbringing and life you know and then learning what can be and what hardships people have to go through and how still like you know like in this country and like in Germany too you know they're like oh yeah American that racism so there's like there's like this kind of leftist kind of view where it's like really chic to hate America because of Bush and Reagan and all of that right. you know but then they oversee that like weird racism or but where you're really from you know all of that exists in germany too you know right. and and like that has to be addressed the same yeah it's like it's it's way. everywhere yeah. it's it's like 50 yeah. 50 almost you know what i mean it's like these elections where it's just almost straight down the middle and then like you know i've driven across the country it's been a while but you know i've seen middle yeah. america and you realize just how different cities are than you know middle right. america is and yeah. The diversity. No, I learned. You know, it's, it's. Yeah, I learned that too. My wife is uh, from Oklahoma City, and our kid loves Oklahoma City. Our kid is like half German, a quarter black, and a quarter Korean. You know, so but like we go to Oklahoma to see her grandparents, who like, um, yeah, lived there all their life. You know, and and her granddad is like the coolest black cowboy from Paris, Texas that you can imagine, like the stoic kind of guy. And her mom is like an immigrant from, uh, like her grandma is an immigrant from Korea yeah. who makes amazing food, you know. So it's like, that's also, but that's also Oklahoma City. And if Oklahoma City, people talk about Oklahoma City, they have this idea of flyover state. But it's actually, once you spend some time there, of course you see the madness and then there's a, like the... the a fair for for the um, the, the 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 gun fairs whatever like all that bullshit right, right. and open ca- carrying or whatever and the trucks and the driving and whatever but there's also these niches where like really people try to live a life that is not that cliche of of like the right-wing existence of yeah. uh rural america you know and they were like there's amazing bars clubs restaurants and whatever you know and it, and it's kind of like it's 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 a cool place and Oklahoma City is also architecturally super interesting because they had the boom in the 70s 
but then it kind of died down and a lot of things did not get raised and rebuilt later so you have like these really uh, uh, cool buildings from the 60s and 70s that are still existing yeah. and looking great you know like Dallas for example is like very different because they kind of kept building and building and a lot of that cool stuff is gone and it like you have a lot of 80s stuff that it's going to take us a little while before we think 80s architecture is really cool, you know, maybe right. in 10 years or so we get there. Yeah, it all comes around. You hang around long enough <laughs> and it gets cool again, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's it's kind of true, you know, it's like the same thing with like cars. You're like, oh, look at that car. And then all of a sudden like, huh, could like an 80s car be really cool again or like a 90s car? We'll <laughs> right. see when that happens. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, a Yugo. Yeah. Remember those? <laughs> or a yeah. Pinto or something. Yeah. I saw a Pinto recently and I was like, that's kind of cool looking, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, ex- no, actually it is, yeah. And then it's like, yeah, you sometimes just need the the distance to, to realize, like, to see it in a bigger picture, you know, and in the whole kind of stream of whatever design did and how it evolved into this and then to that. So you need the distance of that. You know, I, I remember that in Germany, like, especially architecture from the 50s was like looked down upon because like oh that's a post-war architecture and a lot of stuff is so ugly it was built in a haze a lot of it and whatever but then there's really really beautiful pieces especially in in cities cologne also was destroyed a lot you know and cologne has some amazing 50s and 60s architecture where you just like it just blows you away you know and it's really interesting you know so the the perspective is always the point of what you're able to see or not. It's just like if you go back, like my perspective on my first documenta was like that of an ignorant. You right. know? Yeah. Well, that's the, I always say that the beauty of traveling is that yeah. you just, it's a different education. And not only yeah. is it an education on culture and place, and but also just visually of seeing different colors and different things, you know. Oh, yeah. I think it's great if people can do it you know, especially creative people or artists. I think yeah, it's it's yeah. so beneficial. And a lot of times you'll find that those people who are problematic that we were talking about are people who never leave. They never yeah. open their group of people to anyone outside, yeah. you know, that one small group. Yeah. And you kind of like become yeah. ignorant to everything else and, and yeah. afraid of it in a way. Well, it's, the, it's the fear of the other that what it then runs down to. Yeah, my my dad had that, but not with people, with food. that is sad it was really sad like he just never ate anything ethnic at all like it was all just like you know and I think it's just because if you spend you know decades I grew up really poor in Pittsburgh you know and if you grow up and you're never exposed to that it's almost like your palate becomes set you know what I mean and like once it's set it's hard to break free yeah yeah, I remember my dad coming back from the Philippines and bringing mangoes. He just brought, you know, you could do that yeah. back then. Oh, you know? yeah, you could just bring so he had like, he had a Yeah, he had just had a, a suitcase full of mangoes because he fell in love with mangoes in the Philippines. It was like, and then nobody had seen a mango. It's like, what do you do with it? What's this inside? Like, what's that weird thing inside? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like so... And when we lived in Romania... We got totally hooked on garlic because the German cuisine doesn't really have, like in the 60s, didn't have garlic, you know. So we were like diving into that thing. And my mom would make mayonnaise herself because she couldn't buy mayonnaise, you know, certain things. She just had to improvise and do stuff, you know. And then when my dad came back from Korea, it was like, my favorite dish now is sam. So he would make sam for (laughs) us, you know. So that was really nice, you know. 
Yeah, being yeah. exposed yeah. to that, it's it's a gift, yeah. you know. Yeah, and by now, of course, we all know that like the heart of people and their soul is in their food. Oh man, it's like yeah, it's and crazy. if you go and people feed you, that's just the best thing that can happen to you. So the yeah. show you got up now, it's up. I mean, yeah. it just opened, so it's up for a yeah. while. So far, so good. A good response. People are into it. Yeah, like Miles told me, it's drawing crowds, so that's a good sign. That's great. I mean, that's yeah. post COVID. Really, that's all you can ask for is people going and looking at it. You know experiencing it yeah. which is good and it's nice weather it's a good time it's a good time for a show in New York yes yeah yeah and then we like um, you know Alex Alex Dodge and yeah. me we uh, curated a show that's gonna open after my show nice so we have like some crazy finds that we're gonna present in the context of Miles McEnery Gallery oh, that's great that's gonna be things that are not paintings cool that sounds good. Yeah, so, that's exciting. Yeah, so it's that's, a good time. Yeah. No, it's a good time. It's like I'm, I'm super happy. Yeah. And also like realizing what I did there, like uh, being able to realize it the way I wanted it. It was really, really satisfying. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, the show looks great, man. Congratulations on it. Thank you. And everyone should go see it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's thanks right. a lot, Marcus. It was great to talk. Okay. Thanks. Sound and Vision is recorded by, edited by, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast by going online to the website, soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can find images at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. You can follow my work at Alfred Studio or brianalfred.net. Marcus's show up at Miles McEnroe Gallery. Check it out. It happens to be the gallery that I'm also represented at. It has a bunch of good shows up right now, so check out Miles McHenry. Many thanks to Fulcrum Coffee Roasters. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors. Many thanks to the New York Studio School for their sponsorship. And many thanks to you guys for listening. If you can, leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. And if you really want to support the podcast, check out this podcast book, Why I Make Art, which is available wherever you get books. Stay tuned. More interesting conversations with some really great artists coming your way every Thursday. Make sure you subscribe and like the podcast, and we'll see you next week.